Very good morning to you. Three minutes after 8 o'clock, you're listening to Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, Alibaba offers six and a quarter billion Hong Kong dollars for a controlling stake in ChinaVision Media. U.S. politicians deal a blow to two American car makers, GM and Tesla, and markets sputter on further concerns over China. Oil and copper slid. Well, here's a tease of what's to come in the program, a comment about credit in China. 2014 is going to be a year default. So you're going to see trust products default, wealth management products default. You'll see bonds default uh, like we just did. You might even see local government finance vehicles uh, teeter on the brink. So it's going to be a year of default. This is a good thing. It's injecting risk into the Chinese system. So yes, it's very positive, but it might make investors a little bit nervous in the meantime. That's Leland Miller from the China Beige Book. He was asked if this was priced in or discounted in the market. You know, the question is, what, what is the market in China? I think that people are realizing right now that uh, that there is such a thing as risk. They're, they're realizing it very slowly. I think that most people that bought wealth management products or trust products over the past couple of years figured their entire investment was backstop. So I don't even know how to answer the question because I'm not sure what the market is for it right now. But I think what's important is going forward, people will understand that when they make an investment and they're being promised something like 9 and 10, 11 percent return, uh, they have to actually do a little bit of diligence on the investment and the companies they're dealing with because they're probably not going to get all their interest and principal back if, if there's a problem. We'll hear more from him later. China, of course, had its first onshore bond default after Shanghai Chowry Solar missed a payment late last week. In our featured segments this morning, China Central Bank Governor Zhou Xiaoquan has laid out a plan for financial reform. We'll take a look at these. They include efforts to liberalize bank deposit rates within a couple of years. David Gaud from Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management will join us on the program. Also, Satyajit Das, author of Extreme Money, will be along later in the program. And we'll preview this evening's Art Walk with John Batten, owner of the John Batten Gallery. Briefly, the way markets are moving now is like this. The Nikkei down 207 points at 15,016. In Australia, the ASX 200 moving off 46 points. That's down about eight-tenths of a percent, while in Seoul, the Kospi has moved down about one-third of a percent. Gold trading out 1,347. The dollar is worth 102.87 yen. So that means uh, the dollar has weakened a little against the yen. Strong yen means a bad equity market in Tokyo. And the euro is trading now at 1.385 U.S. dollars. The guest coming up in just a moment, but wanted to get to some of the news flow first. New Jersey has blocked Tesla Motors from selling automobiles directly to consumers. Bloomberg's Mark Crumpton has more. Tesla's Elon Musk has been pushing to sell cars directly to customers, bypassing dealerships in the process. But dealers are firing back with lawsuits, claiming the practice violates state laws. Now a New Jersey commission has passed a motion to block direct car sales. Tesla said that the New Jersey commission move would shut its stores. The New Jersey commission's Tesla-related motion passed unanimously. An interesting point, Tesla discovered just yesterday that this rule was under review. Two other states have also banned direct sales. And also in the news, the U.S. Justice Department has started an investigation into how General Motors handled the recall of some 1.6 million vehicles that had faulty ignitions. The switches were linked to about 13 deaths. 
Here at home, Alibaba will shell out $6.24 billion for a majority stake in ChinaVision Media. The move will give Alibaba access to ChinaVision's television dramas and films. Alibaba is trying to compete with Tencent and Baidu for China's 618 million online users. And what's interesting is that ChinaVision's current shareholders among them are Tencent. On Wall Street, stocks down overnight, commodity shares slumping with copper and oil prices also down, all on concerns over China's economy. The S&P 500 was down half a percent at 1867. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 67 points to 16,351. Copper futures down 3%. Traders said copper is somewhat related to the health of the global economy, so that could have pushed people to take some money off the table. We get more now from Leland Miller. The verdict is in. China is slowing down right now. Uh, now, 2014 will be interesting because as China slows down, people will be trying to figure out, is this a good slowdown where you have uh, you know, a situation where the government is engineering slower, healthier growth, or is it a bad slowdown in which the government is resisting reform and seeing the uh, economy decay out from underneath it? This is why people are going to be watching the tea leaves more than they ever have before. Uh, they're going to be searching for ex uh, extra data sources like China Beige Book, uh, but really looking to see how much of these reforms uh, dig in and, and are effective and, and are answers to what was pledged at the third plenum uh, last year. He was asked if the reforms will be implemented. Well, I mean, one thing we looked at is, is, is deposit insurance. So they just promised deposit insurance this week. They alluded to it several months ago. Um, I think that seeing some of these, uh, these major reforms, national deposit insurance would be a major reform, but it would be a precursor to any of the major reforms. You want to see steady progress. You don't want to see Chinese uh, announcements on reform that are announced and then never implemented. So you want to see a steady course of this. Um, as the economy is slowing, you also want to see a healthier credit transmission mechanism. So one of the things that we watch very, very closely is the credit data. What's cost of capital, who is accessing that capital, and are small and medium-sized enterprises and, and, and private companies uh, in China uh, overall ha continuing to have problems with access to capital. If that continues, you're going to have a, a real serious issue over the next two years. So that's Leland Miller of the China Beige Book, and we're joined in our studios by David Gaud, who's a senior fund manager at Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management. David, good morning. Good morning. So we had China um, really in the news for traders in Europe and in the United States and, and really everywhere. People are very concerned about the Chinese economy. Um, what's your view? But basically, I mean, what we would say to investors is that for those who are, you know, extremely scary about the whole situation and thinking that it's going to be a, a complete meltdown and a systemic collapse, uh, they had already plenty of time to jump fish, ship. So uh, what we would say is that it's probably now time to move to the second step, which is to look in details. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, default in bonds, default in uh, shadow banking, default in trust as sort of, you know, aggregation of negative elements. But if we look at it one by one and we start to address each and every case and we're starting to get actually a lot of details on every each single case, we are able to do some sort of risk profile of every each asset. Uh, you mentioned Chaozhou last week in the solar space. We've got a, a new stock today called Baoding Tianhui. The A share stock is suspended today. The bond probably is in default. Uh, this is again a solar company. This is private company. This is the solar sector. It's been loss making for two years and uh, it's in a province which is highly indebted. So if you've got a whole actually uh, criteria and elements which explain why these companies are facing difficulties. But is that the case for 
every single asset of the shadow banking, every single asset of the trust. Well, this is why it's important, because people want to know whether there will be contagion, whether we might see something like what happened after Lehman defaulted. Different story, um, a big investment bank, but this is the worry. No, absolutely. But I mean, again, let, let's go back to the, the, the specific case. Let, let's take a charger case last week, you know. So there is a default in bond. We know that on top of that, the banks had actually given some credit to that company for the past two years. But we also know that those banks have been restructuring the debt for the past year, disposing of assets, selling to third party. So there's been some engineering done in order to avoid that contagion to the banking sector. And no doubt that it's going to apply to every single case. Uh, talking about the trust, you know, since end of 2012, we had 20 cases of trust default. And every single time, they've been addressed. And there are solutions which have been tested, like asset disposal, like third-party intervening, uh, like extending the expiry date. There are plenty of options which are available, and they've already been tested in China. So, so would you say that the reaction so far has been actually relatively benign to this Chao de- default? And um, is that a good sign? It is a very positive sign. Uh, you know, this is not just a, a revolt. It's a revolution within the financial sector in China. And, you know, if you just take actually the, the, the single elements, you may miss the bigger picture, which is that there is a process which is ongoing to clean up the entire, uh, the entire space. Uh, it's going to make casualties, no doubt. But one, I mean, I would just say one single thing. I mean, if you buy a bond on a solar company and you're getting 9% yield and you know the company has been loss making for the past three years, I mean, somehow you should feel responsible and feel like I should have known better earlier. And who holds most of this corporate debt? Well, it's a mix, actually. I mean, within the trust, for instance, you know that you've got a a majority which are single products, so single investor products. Behind this, you may find some insurance companies, you may find some corporates, and you find actually retail investors as well. And again, uh, we're going to see casualties, we're going to see losses. But once again, a 9% yield in those conditions on those poor quality assets, uh, people should have seen it coming. Okay, so for people listening, uh, you know, we often talk about the buy side versus the sell side. Uh, uh, And David works on the buy side. I mean, he is paid to uh, buy uh, stocks and put them into funds. Uh, He's not out there trying to sell them to you. So it's important that we ask him, are you comfortable enough to buy in China now? Absolutely. But does it mean we're going to be uh, invested in the banks at the moment? Not. But does it mean there is a systemic risk in China? Not again. I mean, so we have really to differentiate how we select our assets. And frankly, I mean, look at the, the return we're getting on China, new sectors, new economy sectors for the past 12 years. Some stocks are up more than 100%. Look at the IPO space in Hong Kong, actually. Most of the recent IPOs have done extremely well. And now on top of that, you've got SOEs, which are restructuring. Look at the case of Sinopec two weeks ago. This is actually a major news, and this is going to unlock value within the SOEs. And that's the positive point on China. Okay, let's talk a little bit about overall market uh, uh, sentiment. Um, If we set China aside a little bit, uh, as you look at Hong Kong and what's happening in the U.S. and and in Europe, uh, do you feel comfortable or are you starting to get nervous? But basically, the numbers out of Europe are quite positive. You know, if you look at the PMI, we continue to see some recovering uh, recovery. If you look at the consumer confidence index across Europe, it's also improving. Uh, The U.S. data are a bit mixed so far, but this is not a bad thing from a liquidity point of view. That should prevent the Fed, you know, from being uh, 
too aggressive in its tapering. So, I mean, this is relatively positive, what the outcome we're getting. On top of that, at the corporate level, uh, yes, the revenue is not as strong as expected, but the margins are holding very well in the US and Europe. So you're going to see earnings momentum. And, you know, China could be a, a later catalyst, probably difficult first half, but the second half, which should actually some so extremely interesting. So case. you're fairly sanguine. Uh, given that we're seeing a little bit of a dip now, um, would you buy this dip? Absolutely. We're fully invested. Okay. Stay with us. Uh, let's say good morning to Sajajit Das, who's an ex-investment banker, a derivatives expert, and author of Extreme Money. Das, good morning. Now, you say the real level of non-performing loans in China is probably 10 times higher than reported. And so would that put you in the camp of being quite nervous about defaults coming in China? Look, I think there's several things to look at. One is Western perspectives are misleading. I was listening to your colleague and I was uh, thinking back to people's perceptions of China. Noel Coward famously wrote in Private Lives, China, very large. And General de Gaulle once described China as very large with lots of Chinese people. Look, that's an insult. That's an insult to our guest. He lives in Hong Kong and covers China companies. No, it's not an insult. I'm just pointing out that sometimes from the outside, even if you have some perspectives on China, it's very difficult. I think China has a fundamental problem, which is, stripping aside individual value issues, it is actually all about the fact how they've engineered their growth. And fundamentally, that growth since 2008 has changed in character. And I would argue they've never grown an 8%, because if you actually look at the source of that growth, that's been a lot of debt pumped into the economy of 30 to 40%. And we all know some of that debt is bad. So if you do the accounting properly, the 8% you should deduct the bad debt from. And so they've never grown at that point. But the problem is the debt buildup, which is now about 250% of GDP, There's going to be some casualties, and I agree with David, there's going to be some casualties. The question is, how is this going to be handled? Like David, I'm a little more sanguine about the sort of catastrophic meltdown. It's not going to happen, and it's going to not happen because the Chinese Communist Party, which is at the heart of all of this, will see uh, economic and financial systemic collapse as undermining their own credibility. But the problem is, the way they will deal with that is I'm less optimistic on is reform. And I think David's view is that there will be major reforms. The most puzzling thing about that is all the reforms that have been talked about today are the same as the reforms five years ago and seven years ago. And I don't think that will take place. So I think what will happen is a regressive move towards essentially using the same tools and coming back to the banking system. We know how it will be solved, which is they will keep deposits in the banking system, keep interest rates low, guarantee the spread, and basically use that stream of earnings to basically cover the bad debts. And they'll use their asset management companies, but a lot of capital is now being tied up so in non-performing assets. In a sense, then, it means that the average Joe is paying for the bailout because there's a very large spread between loan and deposit in the banks, so it allows the banks to cash up. They will ultimately absorb it, but that has been paid by average borrowers. And it'll be paid by basically less growth, lower living standards. So I can't see how they can actually close the circle in terms of all the different issues they have to solve, like the investment versus consumption rebalancing, the banking system fixes. And I think underlying this, I don't think this is an economic issue. This is a political issue. And China, in moments of stress, historically has always reversed itself to conservatism. 
And I would just make one additional comment, which is about implementation issues. There's an old Chinese proverb, the mountains are high, the emperor is far away. And to push this into such a large country with so many diverse factions, and everybody looks at the Communist Party and the Politburo as being unified. There are factions within that that are fighting for control. It's going to be very difficult to do that. So I don't fear a collapse, but I think the scenario we are looking at is more like a Japan-like stagnation over a long period. So how, so how to relate this for the average listener, how can a, an average person protect themselves against this slow, gradual decline you see? Well, I think there will be, like all, making money has nothing to do with what the macro picture actually does. Because making money, uh, you know, just as an aside, uh, financial market analyst and investment management has nothing to do with these long-term trends. It has to do with identifying very short-term opportunities and the impact of specific pieces of information effectively into the market. And at the moment, people are going to essentially have opportunities to trade in different sectors, which may benefit from the modest modest reforms that take place and the restructuring. So there will be opportunities, and it's about picking those opportunities. But the problem is you're going to have to be very adroit and understand how these reform processes and the management processes will take place. What do you see as the most important reforms that they should implement? Well, I think the most important one is the uh, improvement of consumption, which would basically mean rebalancing the economy, going away from the SOEs, encouraging the private sector, deregulating the banking system. But they're not going to do any of that in a meaningful way. And the most telling sign that I think we haven't talked about is the fact that the Chinese authorities are going to devalue the one quite significantly in the coming days and weeks. So you think that this modest move down is the, uh, is the precursor to a much bigger move? They'll do it gradually. They and, always do it gradually. And is that, is that done to help their exports, which have fallen dramatically? Well, there's basically three sources of driving your economy. There's investment, there's consumption, and there's the external account, which is net exports. And they want to reduce investment, but increasing consumption will be slow. So actually increasing net exports would be helpful in this environment. But if you, if you want to increase um, consumption, that means imports. Doesn't a weaker currency hurt you on that level? It does, but what it does is basically prevent people from importing. And if you look at the imports into China, a lot of them are luxury goods. It's not the only component, obviously. And the Chinese authorities would be quite pleased to see those taper off under these conditions. When you look at the global economy, you've been uncomfortable with the way the whole system works for a long time. Uh, any moves um, you know, on the banking level in Europe or in the United States tapering uh, the bond buying, anything that encourages you? Look, I think fundamentally we're in this sort of holding pattern. I think Seth Klarman the other day used an analogy which I've thought of before, which is the Truman Show analogy. We're all on a sound set where we're basically being managed by a bunch of policymakers who can't afford the system to collapse and can't also afford for the system to make the changes that need to be made in a very fundamental way. So, in fact, in a perverse way, we are looking more like China. I was saying to somebody the other day that the old days of Soviet Goss plans have actually reached the West because it's very engineered. So the best opportunities actually in the world, and your uh, guest, uh, Mr. Gord, actually identified them, is to try to identify what Janet Yellen is going to do on the taper. So there'll be opportunities, but I I don't see a fundamental change because the fundamental 
issues haven't been dealt with. Well, one of the things that's happened over the past 20 years, a lot of bubbles have been created. Uh, the commercial lending uh, that developed into a savings and loan crisis, then the tech bubble in 2000, and the housing bubble, they all popped and caused a lot of distress. Um, where's the next bubble? Can we get in on it for a while and then get out before it pops? Well, I think fundamentally most risk assets, because of the low cost of carry, because of low interest rates, have come up very, very sharply, and they're probably going to be continue to be supported. And the most interesting one here is equities, particularly dividend-paying equities, which uh, I think you've heard me say before have been become very attractive because of their yield, is going to continue to be very, very big. And also the other thing which is really quite fascinating to watch is the rerun of the TMT bubble from the late 1990s, yeah. when anything which has growth written all over it whether it's cloud computing, whether it's social media, digital marketing, will continue to be very, very attractive for investors because everybody's looking for the one in 10,000, which will be a sustainable, long-term, successful business. Okay, briefly back to David. David, uh, Das has been critiquing your work. How about a critique of his? Well, you know, I'm always quite surprised by the special treatment which is made to China, especially from people, you know, who tend to write probably more history book than, uh, you know, uh, present books. <laughs> uh, my, my very simple case is that if the macro will hold, then there will be investment opportunities. There are investment opportunities. If there's no systemic risk, then we should be talking about every single case in particular. And we should stop, you know, talking about China in very large and very... Uh, general manner. Uh, it would help investors. Uh, I just want to remind as well that the the massive discount which apply to the Chinese assets right now makes uh, the case actually extremely interesting. So, you know, I mean, it's hard to debate because on the ground, we see plenty of great opportunities. Okay. And uh, again, China deserves better. All right, David, thanks very much. David God, Senior Fund Manager over at uh, Rothschild Asset Management and Sat- Satyajit Das, uh, ex-investment banker and author of Extreme Money. Many thanks to you, Das. And we'll talk again. I want to say good morning to John Batten, owner of the John Batten Gallery. We want to have a chat about the Hong Kong Art Walk coming up tonight. John, good morning. Hi, Brian. Should remind everybody that RTHK Radio 3 will be broadcasting live between 7 and 9 o'clock. Art Walk gives people a chance to see some art, to see some galleries, to see the wonderful streets of, of Hong Kong. And you're also giving uh, proceeds to charity. Tell me more about it. What's, uh, what's the chief aim for you? Oh, I think it's twofold. One is a charity element. And it, 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 the money mainly goes to the Society for Community Organization. And you have often have a... Uh, guests from SoCo to to comment about poverty in Hong Kong and housing conditions. But we actually also give um, uh, benefits, I suppose, to the artists involved. So they all get a fee, an honorarium, and a... Um uh, the students, student volunteers all get a uh, graduation show donation, uh, usually uh, about 25000 20000 uh, to each of the two universities involved. And there's also sort of a nice chance to see some of the historical uh, remnants of Hong Kong and some of the culture in the city just mingling with people wandering through the streets. Exactly, Brian. The, the, the galleries are all located mainly in, in Central and, and Sung Wan. And in between are these fantastic lanes and back alleys 
that we um, we forget about in many ways, although the last few years we've appreciated them. Yeah. And in those streets, we also have other displays of art, the, 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 the artists that are invited to do um, installations and videos. We've got an outdoor cinema tonight. Is there an element of education in this? In other words, do the artists speak or do some of the gallery owners speak uh, to students and to um, people who have bought tickets? Well, not formally. It's a, it's a one-night event. It's, it, we don't have a, a talk series. But the, 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 the good thing is it's a very intimate, um, non-confrontational. Going into a gallery at the best of times can be quite scary. It's empty, it's big, it's large, it's got white walls with expensive paintings. Yeah, and but one, in a group one, atmosphere. One is often afraid of uh, exposing one's uh, uh, ignorance. <laughs> well, there, there, there is that, yes. Yeah. So when you're in a group, it's easier. Yeah. Okay, so let's do a little bit of the math. Um, the tickets are $400. Uh, how many people are you expecting to come through? Well, when we started Art Walk um, 13, 14 years ago, I, it, it was one of the few events. But now, actually, if you look at, at March, we've got so many things. I, I see there's a wine event next week. There's the opening of the Caravaggio show at the Asia Society tonight. Uh, M Plus have got an exhibition out at the Cattle Depot. But Art Walk um, you know, is a, a sort of an iconic event. We'll get about 1,000 people. And it's quite an interesting uh, contrast, I would imagine, between the Jockey Club's uh, massive funding of the Caravaggio exhibit and uh, what you guys are doing on the private side, which doesn't have a lot of seed funding, does it? It has absolutely nothing. Uh, we, we, we do the event based on the, the ticket sales. So uh, the contributions that make um, that people make when they buy a ticket pay for the event. It's done in a very low-cost way. Uh, we we don't have a huge marketing infrastructure. Uh, my own personal mobile phones on the website. Any problems you deal with me, and we we deal with them immediately. Well, um, what sort? Because this is a money show. What sort of cost do you have in putting this on? Our main cost is actually advertising. To tell you the truth, we we. Um, we we last year we spent one hundred and thirty thousand on advertising just to get the the word out, and that's something you have to do with any kind of event anywhere in the world. You have to market it. So even though what ostensibly is a charity event, you've still got to go out and and print the posters and take advertising space. And the food and the wine, uh, do you buy that out of the ticket no, sales or is that donated? That's donated. Okay. Yes. So if you do the math, it looks like you would have a couple hundred thousand dollars you'd be able to donate to uh, SoCo. In the old days, we, we, the, the donation was always 400, 400 450,000. Mm. Last year, we had a lot of rain. And and that that is an, an organizer's nightmare is rain and we look outside today and it's overcast but we're going to survive. When Art Basel comes into this time frame uh, in the future, will you consider moving your dates? I I, I think we have to. Um, there's just too much happening in in March. There's the rugby sevens. Art Basel will come in the exact same week we're on. So, you know, we're small. We can, we can easily manoeuvre and, and go to another date. Weather would be great in, say, late November, wouldn't it? Yes, and in fact, um, late November we start in Hong Kong. We're starting to have Christmas parties, so it's possibly ah. slightly earlier. Okay, yeah. All right, John, well, good luck. We'll be there live tonight, and for people listening, you'll be able to hear from gallery owners, from artists, and uh, from, from people coming through. And it should be a good show on between 7 and 9 o'clock right here on Radio 3. And we've been speaking with John Batten, who's the owner of the John Batten Gallery. Money for nothing at 8.30. <laughs> Thank you.
We do see some selling today. It looks like a red letter day, red numbers day. In other words, a little bit of blood on the tracks. The Nikkei down 236 points, 14,987. In Australia, we see about a 1% drop, two-thirds of a percent. And so I mentioned that oil was lower, Brent crude 108.32, and gold prices at the moment changing hands at about $1,347 a troy ounce. It's time to uh, to take a break from the from the program and move into the news before back chat comes up on Radio Three. Say good morning now to Samantha Butler. The Malaysian Air Force says radar information suggests a passenger airliner that went missing on Saturday changed course and headed west. The last civilian contact put the Malaysia Airlines plane somewhere between Malaysia and Vietnam, but military sources say their radar records show the plane started to turn round and may have flown across the Malay Peninsula. So far, no trace has been found of the aircraft or the 239 people on board, most of them from China. Here's our correspondent in Kuala Lumpur, Satis Cheney. Families and relatives of the missing passengers from Beijing will be arriving in KL today. Uh, yesterday morning, quite a number of them arrived here. They were whisked away by bus to various hotels near the airport. Uh, so far, the authorities have been very tight-lipped. I think a lot of questions will be thrown today at 3 p.m. regarding what is going to happen to the families and relatives here in KL. How long will they stay? What will happen if any signs of debris or wreckage can't be